Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. Luke chapter 1 at verse 46, and let's stand for the reading of God's Word. Luke 1 verse 46. This is the word of the Lord. And Mary said, My soul exalts the Lord, and my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent away the rich empty-handed. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. This is the word of the Lord. Be seated. And let's pray. Father, we pray that you would bless the preaching of your word. We thank you for the work that Mary did so many years ago, and we thank you for uh, this inspired song that she, she composed. Lord, I pray that you would bless us from this word and that we would be taught, that we would be strengthened, that we would be encouraged. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> so a young woman named Mary had recently learned that she, um, she had found favor with God. She had found favor with God. The angel Gabriel told her that and, and then gave her this astonishing news. He said, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. As she begins to ponder those words in her heart, she went off in a hurry to visit her relative Elizabeth, who was also pregnant uh, with the forerunner of the Messiah, John the Baptist. In verse 45, Elizabeth says the following to Mary, and it, reach, it, it teaches us really about Mary's faith, right? She says, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. That's Elizabeth remarking to Mary about Mary. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. So you see, it's, it's Mary's faith. It's Mary's faith, the fact that she believed what God had revealed to her that marks her life. You do not need some fabrication, some extra scriptural fabrication about her immaculate conception. 
right? Mary was like the rest of us. She was born in her sin, born having inherited corruption from Adam, just like everybody who's born of ordinary generation. What was extraordinary, though, is what is ordinary to all believers through time, which is her faith, her faith. Mary did not doubt that God was completely dependable in what he said. That if the word came from him, it was unchangeable and undeniably true. Like all believers through the ages, she believed that those who put their trust in God will never be disappointed. Calvin writes, to believe simply that God exists and that he is true without understanding what it is he wills leads merely to confusion. Faith, as scripture describes it, contemplates God's promises, right? So what he's saying there is, is you can believe that there's a God, you can believe that God is true, but until you get to the point of actually believing the things that God has said, that those specific promises, well, then you'll just be confused. Mary was no deist, right? Mary was no deist like many of our early presidents in this nation. Those deists thought God was uh, some higher power, but they did not take delight in the specific promises of God, especially those concerning Jesus Christ, his birth, his sinless life, his death, his resurrection, all to save man from his sins, right? I, I took a few minutes earlier this week to read through the presidential proclamations uh, on Thanksgiving. There are a few from Adams, there are a few from Washington, there are a few from Lincoln, and um, the, a few from more modern presidents, and they studiously avoid the name of Jesus Christ. I mean, they, they talk of a higher power, they talk of the Father, they talk of Almighty, they talk, but they do not ever mention the name of Jesus Christ. And that's where the promises of God are lodged in Jesus Christ. Right? And so those deists did not know Jesus and therefore did not know God. So they believed something, but they didn't have faith in God. They, they, they may have believed that he was, but they were not much concerned that he was a rewarder of those who sought him. Mary, on the other hand, believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. She laid hold of the promise, that promise given specifically to her by the archangel Gabriel. And she began treasuring that in her heart. She's an example of faith. Right? She's an example of faith. And dear brothers and sisters, we are to live by faith as well. That's how we are to live. We believe the promises of God. We believe in God the Father. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. We believe every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. God offers us eternal life in him. And yes, we must accept it by faith. Mary believed, not in some vague concept, but in the very promises of God, the promises of Scripture. And that faith was credited to her as righteousness. Just like Abraham's faith, and just like your faith, if you have it. Now Mary speaks the words of this inspired poem, beginning in verse 46. It is the expression of a believing heart. 
It's an expression of a, of a heart exploding with faith. Right? It is the song of one who has believed in Jesus Christ and found great joy in God. So what are the themes of this song? And, and ask yourself whether these are the themes of, of your mouth, of your song, of your life, right? Of your walk with God. Are these the themes that burst out of your mouths at awkward times? One other point before we walk through this passage. One of the remarkable things about this passage is Mary's resolve to submit to the Lord and his will. Remember how she responded to the angel Gabriel after he said that nothing will be impossible with God. She said, behold, the slave of God, the slave of the Lord. May it be done to me according to your word. She is a picture of submission to the will of God. A picture of how all of us should approach the word, right? Can we, can we say along with Mary, behold, the slave of the Lord? May it be done, according, done to me according to your word. This is the expression of the soul that is given over to God, the soul that loves God, the soul that is humble, humble before an omnipotent God. Four observations then of Mary's song. First, we see Mary's joy in God, her Savior. Joy. Mary began, begins by speaking of her delight in God. She says that her soul exalts the Lord and that her spirit rejoices in God, her Savior. And this is more than saying that she is excited or she's bursting at the seams. The very core of her being, her soul, her spirit is rejoicing. Right? And that rejoicing arises because she knows that God is what? She knows that God is her Savior, as the text says. That is where true joy begins. That is where the only lasting joy of our lives can truly take root and never stop growing. Everything else is a series of broken promises and anticlimactic uh, peaks. Her praise, we could say, is not simply on her lips, but it arises from her heart. Calvin puts it this way, her Savior is not only in her womb, but in her heart. She rejoices and delights in God's unexpected goodness. Think of that, brothers and sisters. I don't think it would have occurred to anybody, um, not to Mary, not to any other woman, that she might one day be the mother of God's Son. I mean, that's, we, we have flights of fancy and we imagine things, but I don't think anybody would just naturally think, okay, one day, you know, it might could be that I might could have the Son of God residing in me. In and of herself, she was nothing. And her head had not been filled with people's lives, right, giving her an inflated sense of self-esteem. She feared God. And now, unexpectedly, the whole world went from drab grayness to spectacular color, the joy of salvation and being used as a means to that salvation enervated her mind and her heart. You know, and, and I think of my own conversion. I always return to this, my own conversion when I was 19. And and finally understood the excruciating weight of my sin and 
the joy of, of knowing that there was a personal God who knew me, who had created me, and who had redeemed me by the blood of his son. Um, God was stronger than my sins, stronger than my enemies, stronger than my temptations. He was stronger than everything in the world. And when I first believed, the brightness of the sun changed, right? There was never so much brightness in the world as after I believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think she's going through something like this, but for me, it was a perception of light. For her, it's, it's song, it's poetry. She, she is uh, bursting forth with words to the Lord. Think of children and the joy that they have all the time. God has redeemed you from death, paid the penalty for your sins, purchased for you a place in heaven. Why so downcast? Should not your joy be like that of a child, right? Over, I mean, we often say the joy of a child at Christmas Day, but it's like the joy of a child at 5 p.m. on a Tuesday. I mean, it's like they're just joyful, right? Nehemiah 8.10 says, The joy of the Lord is your strength. Do you see what a testimony, what strength, what power will be your joy in the Lord? Do those around you see joy? Joy. Make this evident to your family. Make this evident to your friends. Make this evident to those you work with. Now notice in verse 47 that Mary's joy is in fact that God is her Savior. Those who have this knowledge that God is a Savior of his people must rejoice in him. There are many griefs that we have to traverse in this life. Broken relationships, poverty, uh, losses, being sinned against, sinning against others. Right, dying and death. But at the core of all Christians is the joy that Mary speaks of here in the opening verses of her song. We must have that joy if we have God as our friend. We must have that joy if we have God as our Savior and ever-present help in times of need. Jeremiah Burroughs, our, our, our buddy Burroughs, wrote, Every good thing the people of God enjoy, they enjoy it in God's love as a token of God's love and coming from God's eternal love to them. And this must needs be very sweet to them. Right? That was the joy that Mary felt as she contemplated God as her Savior. She knew that she was the object of God's eternal love and the only appropriate response to such glory is joy. We do need to enter the, into the house of mourning. Right? But that does not mean looking upon joy as something wrong or superficial. The joy of the Lord is our strength, after all. And no matter how much you become a reactionary to the superficial giddiness of the world by being dour and severe and surly, all adjectives that describe me, right? you you will be weak if joy is not at the heart of your faith in God. You'll be weak. You have been saved from hell. You have had your sins removed from you. As far as east is from west, you have Jesus, the Son of God, as a Savior. And the joy that proceeds from such contemplations will be your strength. Right? It will be transformative. With the joy of the Lord comes an assault against everything that the world would use, everything that would 
in the world that would drag us down to earth, drag us into our morbid little world where we, you know, nibble the bread of our discontentment. You have a Savior. You have a Savior. You, your soul should exult and your spirit should rejoice. One less Calvin quote on this section, just to feel joy is simplicity itself. That is what the children of this world do all the time, but to rejoice in God is impossible until we experience the love he has for us and until we know that he will not desert us, but will lead us on to the end, right? That joy that comes from faith. Think about it this way and see if this does not fill your heart with joy. Our salvation, listen to this, our salvation, your salvation is God's concern. Think of that. Yeah, it's your concern, I mean, as a beneficiary, but it's God's concern as a father who cares for his children. It's God is concerned about your salvation, of all the things he could have given himself to. Of all the things that God could have given himself to, he chose to give himself to redeeming sinful mankind. And that, dear brothers and sisters, is stupendous, right? And should result in your constant thanksgiving, your constant rejoicing in God, your Savior. That should be, that should ever be coming from you, no matter what your circumstances may be. Second, we see Mary's humility. In verses 48 and 49, we read of Mary's view of what God has done for her. God has had regard for the humble state of his slave, is the way she puts it. God has turned his attention toward this young woman, this ordinary, average young woman. She is not boasting that her... We can get, we can get tangled up on these verses, and the way that we do that would be to to see her as boasting that her humility required God to bless her in the ways that he blessed her. Um, rather, that's not what's happening here. She's being self-effacing, right? And desires to give God the preeminence, attributing her happiness to him all along, right? So she's being self-effacing. Mary is odd that God would bless her in her lowliness, and God would honor her with the carrying of the Son of God, though she is just a lowly slave. Mary, the creature, is, is blessed to carry in her womb her Creator, her Savior, her God. She is overwhelmed at this. She does not boast as if this is her due. She does not claim, as others might be tempted to, that she has earned this right. Yeah, of all the people, of all the women in the world that should carry the Son of God, it would be me. I mean, that would be the most astonishing sort of boasting you could imagine. That would be shocking pride, the grossest pride in the history of the world. What woman, what sinful woman could earn the right to bear the Son of God? Yet when it comes to the Roman Catholic view of Mary, that's precisely what they say. They say that it was because of her extraordinariness that God was obligated to use her for the incarnation. They turn this verse on its head. They make Mary teach God in this verse. Again, borrowing heavily from Calvin today. 
Um, he says this, They blithely hail Mary as queen of heaven, star to guide the wanderer, salvation of the world, hope of, and light of the day. Whatever God reserves to himself in scripture, the papists attribute it to the virgin. Now by the mouth of his prophet Isaiah, God swears that he will not allow his glory to be transferred to another and that his glory is his, whole and inviolate. Yet these detestable rascals make God out to be a perjurer. They use his words in scripture as a pretext to exalt a weak and transient creature. They make an idol of her and insist that there is nothing which may not be properly ascribed to her. Worse, they set her high above our Lord Jesus Christ. They would have her control and direct him as if he were a child, submissive and respectful of the virgin's rank. And to that, I say this is to lose, right? If, if Mary here is saying, yes, I've been, you know, immaculately conceived, I'm the perfect receptacle, I'm humble, I'm lowly, God, you must use me. If, if, that's, if that's what's going on here, which it's not, this is, that would be to lose such a glorious part of this statement about her humble state and her slavery in this passage. It is not her strength but her lack of strength, strength that gives God's use of her such glory. Rather than this being an example of God selecting that which outranked Jesus himself, he shows his love toward mankind by choosing what is ordinary and weak. He chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Right? But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that he may nullify the things that are, so that no man may boast before God. This is the way God works. The weak are exalted. He who is least will be greatest in the kingdom of heaven. The first will be last and the last first. That is the message of God's use of Mary, God's use of this ordinary, average, humble woman to bear his son, the second person of the eternal trinity, the savior of the world. Augustine said the following about the incarnation and the amazing prospect of the eternal one taking on flesh. He said, He by whom all things were made was made one of all things. The Son of God by the Father without a mother became the Son of Man by a mother without a father. The Word who is God before all time became flesh at the appointed time. The Maker of the Son was made under the Son. He who fills the world lay in a manger great in the form of God, but tiny in the form of a servant. This was in such a way that neither was his greatness diminished by his tininess, nor was his tininess overcome by his greatness. No doubt Mary, as she is pondering these things in her heart, had such thought as Augustine expressed. And her reaction is, who am I that I should be used this way? Who am I that I should be used this way? Yet her humility does not turn to a denial. False humility would have said, no, not me, Lord, you should choose somebody else. No, her true humility leads her to accept 
what God had commanded in the fear of him, and yet she knows that this is an exalted position to be in. The mother of Jesus. From this time on, all generations will call me blessed. Yeah. You bore Jesus. You bore the Son of God. Indeed, if we respect Jesus, if we love the Son of God, if we know who He is in all of His eternal glory, we will call this ordinary woman who birthed them blessed. She is blessed because of what God has done, how God used her, not by what she had done or how she had allowed God to use her. She was a weak thing through which the omnipotent one was born. And to conclude these contemplations, she sings, For the Mighty One has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is upon generation after generation toward those who fear him. Mary has received from God, who had done great things for her. She, like all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, receives and received mercy. Third, she praises the power of God in her song. Mary now turns to contemplate the power of God from the contemplation of what God has done for her. Her mind turns now to the great things God has done throughout all the ages of this earth. He has done mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who were proud in the thoughts of their heart. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. He has exalted those who were humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent away the rich empty-handed. So she looks back over the sweep of history and sees the work of God, the proud, the rich, the rulers he has brought down, the humble, the hungry, the slave he has brought up. And this is the great dividing line in all of humanity. God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. The proud, the proud cannot possibly have any apprehension of who the true God is because when a man is given eyes to see who he is, his awesome holiness, his fearful majesty, majesty just obliterate all pride. The proud man thinks his strength is comparable to God's strength. The proud man thinks his virtue is comparable to the very holiness of God. The proud man thinks his wisdom is comparable to the very wisdom of the Creator. And all those men who have lived for their pride, the great men and women of history, lie buried in graves, dust to dust, ashes to ashes, brought down. Right? And the proud around us who live today, who shake their fists at God, will be brought down as well. The proud will be humbled. But the humble... Right, The humble, those who are given the knowledge of God in Christ, spit at themselves, right? are disgusted by the shallowness of their wisdom, are truly grieved by their constant sinfulness, are distressed by their weakness. And that kind of person God brings up. God exalts. He gives grace to. Many would prefer to inherit the kingdoms of the world that will be burned up. They would rather do that than inherit treasures that cannot be destroyed, that cannot decay, that cannot be stolen. The power of God through the whole sweep of history is captured by Mary's statement here. What looks to us like prosperity will one day be 
destruction. And what looks to us like destruction will one day be prosperity. The proud will be punished. The humble will be pardoned. Those who have not will be those who have, and those who have will be those who have not. God is bringing order. You better believe it. Fourth, she praises the salvation of God. Finally, Mary ends her song of praise by pointing to the fulfillment of God's promises to save his people. He has given help to Israel, his servant, in remembrance in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his descendants forever. So Mary stands at this pivotal point, this fulcrum in history, and she knows that God's promises to her fathers are being fulfilled in miraculous fashion. What joy in her soul knowing that the Messiah was here. The joy of of childbirth is extraordinary, but the joy of salvation, far more extraordinary. Here, Mary enjoys both. (laughs) The the birth of a child and the, the, uh, the coming of her salvation. But she spends her song on rejoicing in her glorious Savior. She points to this conclusion, to the covenant faithfulness of God. The promise made to Abraham, the promises made to Abraham were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. His people Israel had spurned, I mean, think of this though. His people Israel, to whom those promises were given, had spurned God, had rejected him, had been dragged off that land, right? His people Israel had spurned him and God's, and yet, God's character never changes. God's character never, ever changes. God never wavered from his promise. Not once did he ever waver from his promise. Men may be liars, but God is not ever. God said to Abraham when he was 99 years old, now when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. And I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. Mary knows now how these promises are to be fulfilled, right? By her son, by God's son. And she's exulting in this glorious truth, God's covenant faithfulness, all of God's promises being yes and amen in Jesus Christ. Are you exulting in such a glorious truth? 
right? Is the coming of Christ as the fulfillment of all those promises of God to Abraham, is that your joy? Is that your happiness? Let it be this time of year, but, it, but during every season, during every minute of every day, that should be your joy. Let me close with this encouragement from Ephesians 2. And you were dead in your trespasses, trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. By grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. And then listen to this. Therefore, remember formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Covenant faithfulness of God in Mary and bringing her son through that vessel has brought you salvation. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord.